Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by not one but two very special guests, psychologists, therapists, and fellow podcasters, Dr. Jim Jobin and Nick Tangerman. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us, man. No worries. Now, previously on the podcast... I've, I've spoken to some people in your areas, spoken to some uh, neuroscientists, some uh, research psychologists, but I've never really spoken to anyone on the clinical therapy side of things. Being an Australian science podcast, I thought who better to reach out to than to uh, Las Vegas therapists. It made total sense in my head. Well, to, to answer your question, anybody would be better than the guest that you have on the show right now. <laughs> yeah. But you're very, very comfortable in podcast land, I'm hoping, because you two guys run an amazing <laughs> podcast called Pod Therapy, which is kind of how this whole interview came about. Why don't we start off uh, giving a little plug for Pod Therapy? Tell us a bit about it. Thanks, yeah. man. Yeah, Pod Therapy is a, a project that Nick and I started. God, Nick, what is it now? Almost two and a half years ago? Do you think we're yeah. that far deep? They're all yeah, coming up on our on, third year. Yeah, third year. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, the project was a labor of love. You know, it was just us saying, you know, people seem to want to talk more about mental health. There's a lot of stigma about it. People don't feel comfortable. And so we started with this whole mission of saying, what if we could bring mental health to a wider audience, but make it extremely approachable, not take ourselves too seriously. And hopefully by the end of every encounter, people feel like, oh, I could talk to those guys. You know, that's easy. They, they seem approachable. They seem down to earth. They're not these stodgy vest wearing, you know, people that are <laughs> judging you in an armchair. And uh, so that was the vision, man. And, and it's um, it's been way, way more successful than, than I think we ever expected it to be. Yeah, definitely. Way more successful than it probably should be. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah I mean, our, our whole idea, it's I don't know. I don't know if they do this in Australia, but in America, um, one of the things that they do with elementary kids when they teach them about fire safety is they'll have. Uh, a, a fireman dressed up in the full uniform come to the school to let them know, hey, we are approachable. Don't run from us if, you, if you're in a fire. Yeah. Turn on the siren and that exactly. Kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So, so they realize they're human beings and, oh, these are good people. They're not scary. We can go to them. That's kind of our philosophy, but with therapy. So, okay. we, yeah, we and try it's really to make hard it to hear us through the fire mask. We should really stop wearing those. <laughs> I, I disagree. We've gone. We're in season three. We've got to. We've got to ride this out. <laughs> we've Maybe you need far. a siren. We're keeping too. the PPE. <laughs> a siren would be good. Yeah, therapy think, yeah. in session. Toot, toot. Yeah. yeah. Well, we pretty much have that. You know, our audio engineer Jacob. Um, really contributes to the show. He's a big part of, of the <laughs> dynamic that we have. And so we've anointed him as a life coach, partly to mock life coaches, but partly because he was going to give people advice anyway. And so uh, listeners created a jingle for him. And like now he has this whole like intro. <laughs> He's taken over the show. So we damn near have a siren. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like we should explain who Jacob is and, and what the churn is before we start talking about it. Is, is that when you guys know you'd, you'd made it in podcast land and you started recording in the churn? <laughs> yeah, that was actually, it was actually kind of funny how that happened. Um, we, we just kind of fell into their arena 
because um, I was a listener of their podcast, the Ice Cream Social podcast. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they talked a lot about mental health, which I really appreciated because, you know, they made it very approachable. Uh, you know, they and they talk very openly about it and, and their involvement in therapy. And so we kind of fell into their arena and we were recording at another studio and everything was going really well. And then that studio was broken into. So <laughs> it was shut down for like two months. We couldn't record anything. We were doing some stuff from home as much as we could. Uh, but then we uh, they had just moved into a new studio. And uh, so we're like, hey, would you guys want to sublease and and kind of we'll pay you and kind of help you with the payment and everything. And they're like, yeah, that's great. And it's, it's uh, worked out amazingly since then. Uh, we, we benefit from it way more than they benefit from us being in there. Uh, <laughs> they put up with us. I think yeah. that they mostly keep us around so that Jacob can like subtly torture us behind the scenes. Like he'll, you know, pour us glasses of this horrible drink called Malort. And I think he's, as long as he's entertained, I think he's going to keep us around. Yeah. <laughs> so should explain. Matt and Mattingly's Ice Cream Social are two Las Vegas improv uh, comedians, uh, and they have this podcast. And that's how I find how I find out about your podcast. Probably how lots of people are finding out about your podcast. So there's a weird sort of crossover between you guys and their their followers are real. Well, not a cult, but essentially a cult, right? <laughs> They're very <Hashtag> dedicated. <laughs> Yeah, but that their uh, ecosystem really absorbed us, and, and mm. that, that was one of the things that was so neat is before that, we were getting a lot of listeners in college campuses, and so our stuff was getting passed around pretty quickly among psychology departments, and a lot of professors would share our stuff um, because they liked you know that we were approachable and we were kind of like uplifting, um, but we were still actually clinicians, and so a lot of students were getting turned on to us. Then we get absorbed into the Matt Mattingly's ice cream social ecosystem. And that was profound because I was scared that, you know, what would a, a comedy podcast followers, you know, have any interest in us? You know, why would that be a thing? And I didn't know because I wasn't a fan at the time. But once we got absorbed into their culture, they invited us into uh, their, their annual Woodstock of podcasting <laughs> that they call Scoop Fest. And so we went and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of their fans were there in attendance. They asked us to, you know, do our podcast on stage. And I was thinking, well, this will never take off. Who would ever care? Um, but it was amazing. I mean, there was a line around the stage of people who wanted to <laughs> ask questions. And they were very genuine and very real. And so it just turned out that this, you know, fan club is just very supportive and very pro-mental health, like aggressively pro-mental health. Mm. And that turned into our version of the fan club that we kind of call the Therapal community. And, and so they're just militantly pro-mental health. They just want to love. <laughs> so that's great. It's probably ideal for you guys. Because like you said, you don't, you want to be reaching out to people that don't know what therapy is, as opposed to just right. you know, preaching to the choir and talking amongst your little inner circle. And that was one exactly. of the things that we really wanted to do with the podcast, uh, because we're not, as far as therapy podcasts, there's thousands of them. Mm. I mean, everybody's, mm. there's a lot of therapy podcasts, but the ones that we've been listening to are really geared more towards their audience are other therapists, you know, they get yeah. really deep into the weeds talking about theory and which is fun. Like for me, I can listen to that, but I think the average person, they just, 
they kind of get lost and how does this connect to me? So we kind of wanted to be, our audience is not really geared towards other therapists. We want to be more open to just the average person who just has some stuff they want to talk about. Does it warrant therapy or not warrant therapy? Or is it just, I just need to express my feelings and, mm. and just talk to another human being. That's kind of the, the folks we want to be able to capture. Cause that audience, I don't feel has really had, there's, there's, there's podcasts targeted towards them, but they're either way more academic or they're way entertainment. And mm. the person who's yeah. giving advice doesn't have any mental health training. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're just a celebrity that's giving them their best guess. Um, so we kind of wanted to fit someplace in the middle. And you do that in a really great way by just getting people to write in questions that you answer there on the podcast. So yeah, they've been great questions too. I'm really surprised at like some of the uh, some of the questions we've been getting, and then we've had a lot of people who've written in multiple times and give us updates on mm. how they're doing, and it's really cool to see their their progress. And we also and stress a lot of guests our, too. Yeah, and we we stress on our show too that we are not doing therapy. That's one of the big mm, things we right. want to push. And you is know, that we're a saying, legal hey, disclaimer? Is that <laughs> yes? Very oh, hell much yeah, so. is. I'm Very not trying to get so. sued. Yeah, um, <laughs> I leave know, the mics hot when I give them that uh, little disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, and and we we really want to just uh, you know, uh, it seems pretty consistent that we end every bit of advice with, and you should go seek your own therapist yeah. and you should mm-hmm. you know, do this yourself because we're just pointing you in a direction and that's it. But at least the kind of yeah. things that and they're hearing there on the podcast would yeah. give them an idea of what a therapy session might sound like, right? Or mm-hmm. feel like. Well, that's exactly. been the biggest thing that I think that we've gotten from doing the show. I mean, obviously the eternal fame and glory is why you do it. Um, and chicks, but you know, one of the cool other things that's been neat about it is how many people have written in now and told us, hi, I'm now seeing a therapist because I heard your show. Mm. And, and some of these stories are amazing. You know, people that were saying I was on the brink of suicide, you know, or I was in the throes of drug abuse, or I have been, you know, absolutely perplexed by my trauma and I'm working on it now. And the reason why I finally decided to do it because this show seemed easy and it made me think, well, if that's all you have to do to do therapy, then anybody it can go talk to a therapist. Let's mm. just do this. And it's been great to hear those stories. That's, that's the most rewarding thing we can possibly hear. Yeah, I mean, as someone that has sat in a therapist's office, it is, I mean, it is easy. You just, you are just sitting <laughs> talking, and, but other times it's its the hardest thing you've ever done in your life <laughs> every now and again. Most, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But why do you think, you talk about the stigma against it. Do you think it exists uh, simply because people know that it can be quite confronting and hard to do? Or, or is there some sort of broader historical elements to it why why does it still exist yeah i think that there's a couple of layers to that um one is people i think that there's a group of people who think if you're talking to a therapist something must be wrong with you and and i think that part of what feeds that is and i don't know how it is in australia but i know in america there's been a weaponization of mental health words and so mental health words get thrown around to disqualify other human beings 
You know, they'll say things, mm-hmm. you know, everybody will use the phrase, like, you're crazy, or the weatherman will say this, you know, the, oh, the storms are schizophrenic, or the stock market's <laughs> bipolar, you know, and they just throw around these words that, you know, are meant to, in some way, disqualify the thing you're talking about, and then people do this to each other, too. You know, if your boyfriend breaks up with you, he must have narcissistic personality disorder. Um, if, if your girlfriend is jealous, she must have borderline personality disorder. And so there's so much weaponizing of mental health terminology that I think it's created this mentality of like, oh, if you're talking to a therapist, you must be one of those people. Mm. Something must be wrong with you. But luckily, there's now a very large movement of voices that are starting to say, no, therapy's for everybody. You don't have mm. to have some kind of, you know, DEFCON 5 level trouble. It, it's a person that you're working with to live your best life. That's all it is. It's about health, and that's allowed to be a broader thing than a diagnosis of a mental illness. Yeah, I'm often trying to get across to people how great it's been for me personally and and would like to recommend it to other people, but find it really hard to articulate it in a way that doesn't sound like go in and fix your broken brain. You know? <laughs> like, how, well, how, how should I be describing it to people or... or you know, if you're bringing them into the fold, I guess. It is hard to describe that because mm. I've, um, you know, I went through therapy myself. And when I did it, I was also a therapist. And so oh. <laughs> in the very first the very first session that I had, um, I was, you know, beforehand, I was kind of playing this through like, do I want to throw all the cards on the table or do I want to just because I, I don't want to say I'm a therapist and then think I her to think that I'm second guessing everything she's doing, mm. you know? So all these thoughts kind of came through my mind and I just decided like, I'm, I'm just not going to say anything, you know? Yeah. And then, uh, in the initial, uh, session, she was kind of doing an assessment and we started talking about what you do for work. And so finally it came out. Now my specialty is in drug and alcohol treatment, so it's not really focused specifically on mental health. So, um, I just kind of focused more on the drug and alcohol piece. And she's like, great. She's like, and she said, yeah, I've got, you know, therapists that come in here all the time. I've got a lot of folks that I see that are therapists. And, and even, you know, from my perspective, when I talk to people about, you know, what is therapy like, I can say, well, from the perspective of somebody who's done therapy, who's been the professional, I can describe it that way. I can also describe it from somebody who has sat in the chair, you know, as, as the patient. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, everybody's experience is going to be a little bit different. And that's what's really important for people to understand because folks can go into therapy and they may have a bad experience and then be like, I'll never do therapy again. And you have to explain like, well, that was that was that one instance mm-hmm. of therapy. You know, you go back in and you've got a different therapist who has a different modality using a different, uh, a different approach. You could have a completely different outcome. So mm-hmm. uh, you have to try it several times unfortunately sometimes you have to try it more than once to kind of find the right match and the mm. right fit yeah it kind of reminded me the very first time i went to speak to someone they were they weren't a therapist they were a, a counselor which i think is an australian terminology i don't know if it sort of translates over there but yeah it was one of those cases where it just wasn't a good match and it took me a, mm-hmm. a, a couple of people to till i find someone that worked and it was yeah i remember going in there because i was as a field biologist, I spent a lot of time out trudging through the rainforest, catching weird animals and doing sort of bizarre things. And after a long field season of being out isolated in, in Southeast Asian rainforests, I was just uh, you know, crumbling into myself. And 
went to talk to this counselor and told her all my issues and stuff. And she turned around and said, well, you know, what helps some people with stress is reconnecting with nature. So maybe go for a bushwalk or something. <laughs> Have you tried going outside? <laughs> Getting out of the country for a while. Yeah. <laughs> sort of realized that, you know, this maybe this wasn't the person for me, I think. But yeah, after a while, you, you find the right person, you click and... Yeah, it was really great. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. you know, what's interesting about that, too, and this is something, you know, that, that I think we try to represent with folks, too, is when you're, when you're dealing with a medical discipline, and whatever your discipline is, you are fusing together research science and great data, but you're now applying it in a different kind of way, and you're trying to get the results that the data promises. And I think as a therapist, that's a very interesting place for us to be because among the medical disciplines, who we are as people and the way that we personally connect with the patient is extremely important to the results that we're going to get. Whereas if you're a heart surgeon, it doesn't matter what your tone of voice is. It doesn't matter what your background is or how you voted in the last election or mm. you know whether you're a misogynist. <laughs> like It doesn't matter. <laughs> if you can use a scalpel and get the thing out of the thing, it'll be fine. Um, but to do our science, to do our trade, we have to be very, very cognizant of who we are as a person. And so we have to realize that we're not always going to be the right fit for every possible patient which is why when you're shopping for a therapist, we tend to put ourselves out there a lot more. We tend to give bios of who we are. You tend to see pictures of us. I have videos of myself on my website because I want a a potential patient to be able to size me up and kind of in their own mind say, yeah, yeah, I could could work with Jim. He seems like I'd fit well with that guy. Otherwise, we won't be very successful. Hmm. How's that working currently? So we're recording this and... Uh, one of, one of the weirdest times I've ever experienced in my, <laughs> my life, I guess, where the, the whole world is in lockdown. Are you still able to, mm-hmm. to see and interact with people face-to-face in this time? Yeah, yeah. So my private practice, um, I'm doing it now the same way that you and I are talking. Uh, I use a Zoom platform for my private practice, and I use various telehealth platforms. Um, and so it's been working. And luckily, this happened in a time in human history where broadband high-speed internet is functional. It works most of the time. Almost everybody has a smartphone. Those smartphones have high-definition camera and excellent sound quality. We live in an era where, thank God, we've all overcome the dark ages of Skype and moved on to the brighter day of Zoom. And so, yeah, the technology works. And so I've been meeting with folks just as much. Um, Whenever I, you know, pre-corona, I worked four days a week, um, and I usually worked uh, 10 hours a day. I'd, I'd usually do about nine sessions a day, four days a week. And now I do about 10 sessions a day, six days a week. So my workload has actually drastically increased. Yeah, I'm seeing lots of people talking online about how hard isolation is because they just need things to occupy their brain and they have all the spare time on their hands. I wish I had that problem. I've never had (laughs) more stuff to do (laughs) than right now. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel like I I should check in with you both. How are you both doing in the real world (laughs) we're living in? You know, for I was explaining to James earlier that I my job hasn't changed a whole lot. I was already working from home. Um, I am already kind of an introvert. Like I didn't leave the house very often, as it turns out. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy going to the gym, so I was going to the gym uh, six days a week. 
I play hockey, so I was playing hockey twice a week. So that has stopped. But other than that, um, my life hasn't changed drastically given everything that's going on. However, it's still, I've noticed it still has an effect on me because it's one of those things where it's like, Having the option to do something but not doing it is perfectly fine. But having the option taken away from you, yeah. actually, like, knowing that, like, oh, I can't go do these things. I can't just go to a movie now if I want to. I can't go out to eat right now. And it's that, like, I, w- I wasn't going to anyway. But it's the idea <laughs> that, like, you can't do it kind of messes with me. But overall, uh, it's it's been okay. Um, I, I count my blessings and I... Um, I'm not going to complain too much because, you know, we live in the entertainment capital of the world and (laughs) there's so many people in our area that are drastically affected by this, that it's, it, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very blessed, very lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just as, as things went into lockdown, my work contract ended and I had to start piecing together work as a freelancer and i was i was prepared for this i knew i was gonna start this stage of my career i didn't expect the rest of the world to to join me on the adventure (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's right but Uh, jim you're still working with patients at the moment what what are people experiencing right now um, they're experiencing a lot of the same things I'm experiencing, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, anxiety. I mean, for me, this this uh, quarantine has really, really exacerbated my own generalized anxiety disorder, um, and it's been an opportunity for me to practice my skills. And, mm. and luckily, whenever you're a person who's touched some of the same illnesses that you're treating, um, I think you understand it in a very intimate way. And so that's empowered me, I think, to work with people right where they're at. Um, I've never seen as much generalized anxiety disorder um, and acute stress responses as I'm seeing now. Um, It's also been just a lot of depression, you know, and and some of it, of course, you know, we can trivialize it and say, oh, you know, people are sad because they're locked in. Well, no, no, they're, they're sad because it's the death of an entire type of life that they thought they were going to live. Mm. You know, whenever you've lost your career or your employer just, you know, announced bankruptcy or you you can't, you know, walk your daughter down the aisle at her wedding or walk down and get your diploma to graduate school and, you know, you can't witness the, the birth of your child because nobody's allowed in the hospitals. Um, there's a lot going on. And so we're seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing very strong anxiety, very strong depression, and and more alcoholism than I've ever seen in my career. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things, I guess, that's, you know, one of the funny things about doing Zoom. I've got patients that I'm talking to, and while I'm talking to them, they will pick <laughs> oh, up no. a can of beer. <laughs> yeah, I had a guy do it the other day, just picks up a Budweiser and just takes a gulp while we're talking, and I'm like, hey, um, how many of those are you drinking <laughs> Like you're drinking it during therapy and then, you know, tips the camera down and they're all over the floor and you're like, oh, my God. (laughs) We're starting to get a a much more intimate view of our patients for sure. Wow. And and do you think it's – so the issues that people are presenting, are they things that they've dealt with in the past that are sort of being exacerbated by this or are they totally new things? I mean, I guess – yeah. It's definitely both. You know, I've got a lot of patients who they were managing their symptoms and doing very well, and then this situation has exacerbated that. Um, But I'm actually seeing more first-time people than I've ever seen in my career. 
people that have never talked to a therapist before and they're taking a try to do it now, maybe it's because they finally reached so much boredom that they're willing to do it or, you know, they <laughs> talk to a friend or, you know, I've, I've got people that reach out because they've heard the podcast mm. and they say, you know what, I feel like I already know you because of the podcast and I thought I'd give this a try. And so, you know, we're meeting people where they're at. But um, yeah, this is, uh, you know, that's what's interesting about this corona crisis and the quarantine. It is not just a example of a pandemic, um, but it's also an example of a mental health crisis and catastrophe, which is going to be global in scope. And the data, you know, kind of demonstrates that, too, that this is a very serious matter for people's mental health. Because there's so many different things happening. We have the, the I guess, looming threat of illness, dealing with isolation, but that also changes to people's economic circumstances. So they're really being hit from all sides. I think as well as just the uh, the the feeling of a lack of control. You know mm. that you 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 have nothing. You know that there's really not a whole lot that we can do about this situation. And I think that that feeling of lack of control really contributes a lot to someone's mental health and their mm. well-being. It's actually one of your recent podcasts I just listened to. You described your jobs as something like human change makers. Uh, and uh, something about that really stuck and made me realize how hard your jobs must be because people don't like to change <laughs> or don't change very often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Imagine that. In, in dealing with have this this whole uh, new circumstance we're in we can't we can't change the circumstance obviously do we need to necessarily change people or is it more uh, give them tools to be resilient what's the approach right now yeah one of the things that we've been talking about on the show and and that we're also talking about you know with folks that we get to meet with is sort of appreciating what it looks like whenever there's significant and drastic change in a person's world. And whether that change is somebody you love has passed away, or whether that change is a job that you were a part of is gone, or whether that change is, you know, you were a surfing person and now you can't surf anymore. Mm. Anytime something big like that happens, humans generally go through the stages of grief. And grief is not just for when you're burying somebody, it's when you're burying normal. And so what we're kind of witnessing and expecting is watching humanity or watching entire nations of people kind of going through these stages of grief. And if you think about it, you do kind of see that in the news. You know, you see a, a situation where most people are in denial about the scope of the problem and in denial that this is really going to have any lasting impact or disruption on their lives. You saw a season, you know, where people are angry and they're kind of, you know, upset about this and they demand change or they demand action. You see bargaining where suddenly they're trying to get their government or, you know, their groups of people to help them, save them, you know, respond to the crisis. You see depression where people feel lost and absolutely powerless and they're just absorbing the magnitude of what they've, you know, given up in their lives. And then eventually we hope that people also grow into acceptance. There will be a new normal. There will be a new, you know, way that we do life in a regular sense, but we're going to be okay. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know what it's like over there, but over here, Australia started uh, lessening some of the restrictions. So they're allowing a certain amount of visitors to a house. They're even talking about opening uh, sort of restaurants and allowing small numbers of people in. And I'm, 
even myself and I'm talking to a, a couple of people that are sort of seeing this and going, oh, I actually don't know if I want things to go back to normal. Yeah. I've just you know, the whole world actually decided to go ahead and let Australia be the guinea pigs on this. And I guess you guys didn't know. <laughs> uh, we took a vote. And so we decided to let you guys go first. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's really nice of you. <laughs> you Australians, you're hardy, man. You, you guys can handle it. <laughs> well, it's been interesting to see it will be interesting to see how it goes because they've tried doing a couple of things. Like they closed some big famous beaches. They closed Bondi Beach and things, and that was a big deal because it's sort of a huge tourist destination and crawling with people. And they said, all right, after a while, we're going to open it again, but you can only go there in groups of no more than two, only for exercise. And within minutes, the place was crawling with thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Obviously not really exercising. a lot of exercise and we're so they good. just said all right this is why you can't have nice things and they close exactly. the beach again <laughs> exactly we're not good at yeah, self-regulating a lot of people yeah. <laughs> but if if somebody is uh struggling uh with this time or even struggling with uh you know, the thought of things going back to normal or, or what to do in those times obviously your advice would be to go talk to someone, but in, in the powers that you have right now in, in podcast land, are, are there any tools or tips you could give them? Well, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about on the show is uh, kind of practicing radical acceptance in a way. Uh, okay. It's kind of a mindfulness meditation technique, which is just understanding that you know when you feel something, to not give it meaning, to not give it uh, a plus or a minus or not associate that with this is good or this is bad, but it just is, mm-hmm. you know? So in the sense of how this would apply in our particular situation, you know, to understand that if I'm feeling depressed or if I'm feeling very sad to just accept, yes, I feel sad. And that's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. It's, I don't need to say that this is a negative thing because then what happens is then I start putting more pressure on myself. Well, I need to change this or I shouldn't be feeling this way. And that's mm. when we really start getting into some problems. But to just be okay with, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling depressed about this. I don't yeah. feel good about this. And that's okay. Mm. It's okay to have that feeling. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing how many people fail to acknowledge what their truth is. And either we're stuffing it down or we're minimizing it or we're saying it shouldn't count. And this is also something that we've seen a lot of, James, is we're seeing a lot of people who have a sense of survivor's guilt. Um, They hear terrible stories in the news of the worst possible things, people dying in the hospitals or, you know, being homeless. And they don't relate because right now they're okay. There's food in their pantry and their family is healthy and they're just sitting on the couch and they're playing you know, Animal Crossing, and and yet they're going through things that are happening to them, and they do feel isolated, and they do feel sad, and they do feel scared, but then they feel guilty on top of that because they think, <laughs> well, I shouldn't feel these things. I I have no excuse, and you know, Nick and I are always trying to challenge people to imagine the fact and realize the truth that all stress is subjective, and you as a human being are going through your authentic truth. 
And so it's okay to just acknowledge what you're feeling and to talk about that with another human being, whether that's a friend or family member, a therapist if, if you have access to that, or even just creating your own little Zoom support groups among your own community. We, we did that with our podcast. We started doing support groups and uh, that became a really popular thing and it was just a place for people to share their truth, whatever that was. We didn't try to fix each other. We just tried to receive and understand and that was extremely healthy. So anytime we can encourage people just to encounter their truth in an authentic way without feeling guilt or shame about it, that's tremendous for them. Yeah, and I guess even if people aren't directly threatened by coronavirus, like you're saying before, you're seeing things like alcoholism and, and addiction problems going up. I mean, not not to fear monger, but I'm guessing at this time people are maybe more at risk of, of self-harm, right? Mm, yeah. And that's something that, you know, Nick and I have been studying really carefully. Um, you know, Nick's speciality being in substance abuse, um, at least in America, uh, the opioid and heroin crisis has been a really significant thing for us. And, you know, Nick can kind of expound on this a little bit, but this is something that we're taking very seriously during this time because a lot of people's addictions are highly at risk at this time. Mm-hmm. That and, and access to, uh, you know, um, maintenance programs. Um, buprenorphine, things that are meant to treat uh, opioid addiction. You know, a lot of those are prescribed on a daily basis. So you have to go to a treatment center to get it. And a lot of those agencies, obviously, they're essential services. They can't close. Um, so there is some fear, uh, you know, in a lot of that, those those clients going down there. And it's it's something that we've had to really take a really close look at how we're going to keep those essential services operating and keeping everybody safe as mm. well. Um, it has definitely been a challenge. I mean, as well as, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about, um, you know, suicide rates mm. uh, going up as yeah, well. The suicide and rates are a really interesting area to study. And, and this was an area that, you know, I think it's a good example of, you know, what your show talks about, which is, you know, let's let's encounter the reality of science and research. And, and I think that, you know, what I've heard in your show is sort of take this away from just being this, you know, hypothetical academic thing and bring it into people's real lives, you know, really introduce them to science and introduce them to the humans that do it. And, and this is a perfect example of how research saves lives. You know, the, the studies that have been done on how suicide rates are affected by economic uh, collapses have given us very hard numbers on this reality. During the Great Recession of the, uh, the 2007 to about 2010 era, in, uh, in the United States of America, we saw the unemployment rate go up from 5% nationally to 10%. And during that same time, the suicide rate went up 6.1%, which is the largest single increase in suicidality in our nation's entire history, save the Great Depression. And so the data, which is now, by the way, uh, accumulated internationally, demonstrates that the average rate of increase is about 1% in suicidality based on long-term unemployment. However, there's a lot of data that suggests that if a nation has a robust social safety net, um, that this definitely mitigates the the risk of suicide. If you have strong unemployment insurance, um, health care for all, um, if you have food uh, programs where people don't have to be fearful, or if they can have some kind of assurance that they're not going to lose their homes or their livelihoods, 
then that definitely makes a big difference. But as we now witness a global economic collapse that's going to be indefinite in nature, we don't know how long this is going to last, we are expecting what could be the largest spike in suicides across the entire earth at, at any point in human history. It's something that you're going to start hearing more and more about as this crisis uh, gets worse and, and continues to endure. And do we know anything about what... Uh, types of people might be more vulnerable to this. I'm guessing it's not going to be spread evenly across race and genders and all that. It's not even at all. Mm. It's not even. Um, All all people are at risk in the sense that they will be affected, but it's not even close. The the data says that uh, as much as 70% of the suicide rate is made up of white males um, who are usually between the ages of 30 and 55. Mm. And so that is a demographic that is at the highest risk for suicidality, specifically men, specifically uh, Caucasian men, and specifically those decades of life. That might, would that strike some people as weird, since that seems to be the most uh, quote-unquote privileged group? <laughs> I think it's an interesting question. Um, there's a lot of questions as to why that is. I think, um, well, we already see throughout the data that in all races, men are much more likely to commit suicide than women, mm. um, usually by a ratio of like five to one. So it's already there. Um, and I think that part of that is for men, and it depends on the culture. So I want to be careful. You know, this is an intercontinental podcast right now. And so I want to be careful not to assume all culture. Um, but at least in Western culture, there is a strong emphasis on self-reliance mm-hmm. among men, um, that a man is supposed to be able to take care of himself and take care of others. And a lot of men's social worth is often tied to what is your profession? What do you do? Um, what do you earn? Whereas women, I think, are able to derive social identity more often based on uh, the way that they raise a family or who their relationships are. And of course, you know, aspects like appearance and things like that. So for men, an economic collapse greatly disturbs, you know, some of their most deeply embedded uh, psychological indicators. Mm. And, and I, so I think that they're vulnerable in that sense. And then why specifically white men? I mean, this is a good question to ponder, you know, and you'd think in some ways, you know, we're told by society that the white man has all the power. And and of course, there's an argument to be made for a disproportionate amount of power historically. Um, But in America, we have poor white people, too, you know, and and every continent does. And and I think that that is probably a part of this, too, is that perhaps there's a cultural, you know, distinction among white males that makes them more susceptible to giving up and, and, you know, falling into hopelessness. They might also be less likely to to ask for help. Mm. And that could be a problem in this factor, too. You mentioned just quickly before, too, that one of the big things that might mitigate this is having uh, a country with universal health care. Now, I'm sitting here recording from a country that does have this. You guys are over there in a country where the healthcare system is very different. Uh, I'm guessing you're seeing the impacts of that now, right? Yeah. So like earlier, Nick mentioned that we live in Las Vegas and Las Vegas is the world capital of entertainment. But the downside of that is if people don't have money and they can't travel, they have no reason to come here. And so our city now, I just saw the numbers today, um, Nevada's at 30% unemployment. 
which is unprecedented. Mm. That's unprecedented for even our nation's history. Even the Great Depression was only 25% in America. Um, so this is absolutely catastrophic. In America, for a citizen to come see me as a healthcare provider, usually they're either going to pay out of pocket, which means the money they earn at their job, they are going to give me the same way you would buy a steak at a restaurant or you know a coaching session from a personal trainer. They will come give that to me and I will treat them or they can use their insurance. But in America, you only have insurance if you're employed and you get that insurance through your employer and that insurance doesn't even have to cover mental health and so a lot of folks don't have that kind of coverage or when there's 30 percent unemployment they no longer are going to be able to keep their insurance because they've lost their job and so what we're seeing right now is a lot of people that need help but they can't get it they don't have an income so they can't pay for it themselves they don't have a job so they're losing their employer-based insurance and when they try to fall down to the federal insurance it's very problematic and very restricted the number one question that we get on our podcast is how do i get how do i find a therapist and and how do i pay for it um we've answered that so many times that mm. now we just kind of like go back to episode whatever and and we answered <laughs> it then and that was when the economy was good. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm definitely not trying to get on a high horse or anything, but, but it, it is, <laughs> it's unimaginable being used to being in Australia where, yeah, you, you just go to the doctors and get treatment and you walk out and you don't pay a cent for a thing. It's kind of terrifying wow. imagining. Otherwise, like, as I've said, my partner and I just had our first child and, it was, we got a free baby. Didn't pay for a thing. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's what's interesting about the coronavirus down here, too, is as humans are getting sick and as they're going to the hospitals, as they should, to contain the virus and get treatment and hopefully save their lives, they're now going bankrupt financially yeah. because they can't afford the bills. Do you think that this whole thing is going to change the situation over there or is it too, still too political? I think it's still too creating political. Creating a new conversation. It's creating yeah, a conversation. It's, it's I don't think anything's going to change. <laughs> America is very slow to change. Uh, we have built it that way. You know, our our founders designed a system of government that was designed to be slow and cumbersome and self-checking. Uh, and... Um, it's very hard. It's very rare that a political party consolidates power. It's not a parliament where you just pick your team and then that team kind of makes deals with the other parties and then now they're in charge and they can just kind of do things. Um, we do not have that. Even if one party wins an entire house of government, another party could get one guy in the president's chair and just take over again. And so nothing ever gets done in America. <laughs> and so that's the only strength we've had historically is just an, a ridiculously good economy because we basically have an entire continent, ocean to ocean, and a lot of natural resources. And we don't have damn kangaroos trying to stop us every time we go out, you know, and a lot of freedom. So that's that's the way it's succeeded up to now. But I think this uh, this calls into question every single aspect of the American healthcare system. Mm, it is kind of scary, though, because Australia every now and again likes to look to America for, for, for inspiration. And every now and again, we have a 
politician that comes up and goes, well, America has a great economy and they've got privatized health care, so surely it works, right? Correlation <laughs> yeah. is not causation. You guys should also just let people carry around guns, too. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I'll definitely have to get over there once all this is over and experience it for myself. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. I, I want to go to yeah, where all these, these open carry laws are and just see what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it's the wild oh, west. Oh yeah, Nevada is one of those states. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we're used to it. I, I walked into a cupcake place before this coronavirus thing with my daughter to like get a, a cute decorated cupcake, <laughs> and standing right in front of me is a man with basically an M16 rifle strapped around him. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> like in the cupcake place. I'm glad that you feel safe, sir. All right, I'll let you know when I'm in town. You can ship me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we will. Uh, we'll be your guide. We can protect you through uh, through Nevada. And, and counsel me when I, yeah, I actually, get traumatized by it. Actually, you might have it. to host us, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we might have to go to Australia's refugees, so get ready. You, know, you guys live in the future, literally and figuratively, so we need to come to you. Uh, we're all going to seek refuge in New Zealand, so, you know, <laughs> go straight <laughs> Okay. <laughs> That's what I hear. I hear New Zealand gets, like, high marks for how they've handled uh, yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's starting to sound like a bit of a utopia, that place. And it actually it actually rains there, which is unbelievable if, if you're an Australian. <laughs> but you know, we're talking about this time we're in it's often described as a being it's really unprecedented and nobody knows how to handle it but jim you're kind of saying that no there actually is data out there there's research being done in other periods of time that can inform our practices how, yeah. how true is that for everything else you guys do as therapists I mean, are you just sort of sitting, waiting for research psychologists to figure out how to fix bipolar before you can go in there and do it? <laughs> right. No, we definitely get to stand on the shoulders of, you know, a lot of great researchers and, you know, a lot of great science that comes out of clinical psychology. Um, and that's something that we've had a fun time talking about on the show, too, is kind of going back to historical data that we've, you know, learned from the field and teaching the audience, you know, here's how we learned this. You know, here's how we learned this aspect of psychology or here's how we learned how to treat anxiety or how to treat depression. And we do, you know, we use evidence-based practices as therapists. And, uh, you know, it's only because of the great research that comes out of universities and, and you know, uh, government-funded, you know, laboratories that we're able to continue to inform our work and hopefully always improve it. See, and I think this is where uh, Jim's specialty and my specialty are a little bit different. You know, with Jim coming at this more from a mental health perspective and I'm more of on the addiction standpoint, as far as substance use treatment disorder... We have not, traditionally, we have not been great uh, at applying the research that's been done. There's a lot of really good research going on, you know, with, uh, with the treatment of substance use disorders, but trickling that down to individual providers has been kind of challenging um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, you know, we have for a long time, we've known that uh, addiction is a brain disorder and it has taken us a long time to convince the public that hey this is a brain disorder this isn't this isn't the fault of a personal characteristics or character defects um, we've gotten to the point now where that's generally accepted but there's still a lot of things that we do in treatment that we haven't evolved out of and it's almost kind of like we understand that this is a brain disorder 
but to some level we still kind of treat it as though it is a personal characteristic mm. or personal defect in a sense. And so it, it has been very slow moving to start changing the way that we approach substance use disorder treatment into a more science-based approach. But that's actually true of all psychology as well. This is one of the last remaining medical disciplines that is actively having a war within itself to adopt science and best practices into everything it does. I mean, if you turn on the news on any given day, you'll hear of another you know, American state that is uh, outlawing gay conversion therapy, um, which is scientifically bunk. It's unfounded. It should never have existed ever, but it did mm -hmm. and does in certain states. Um, with alcohol and drug treatment, there's uh, no, no small number of facilities that, you know, come up with all sorts of bogus, you know, things to try to offer you something that's going to fix your problem, but has no evidence for it. There's no data for it. I, I can't tell you how many times I see on websites, these companies that are like, all you have to do is just take this, you know, one pill that we'll sell you and then that'll fix it or, you know, come ride horses with us and that'll solve it. And it's way, way more intricate than that. But it's a field where we still have to battle within ourselves to adopt thorough and robust science into what we do. And um, it's not equally distributed yet. And how much of that is simply like a, a, an information and communication issue? Because I know from working in academia universities, we're in a little bubble and we don't do a great <laughs> job of putting it out there and putting it into the hands of people who need it. Is it just a matter of you guys yeah. trying to find the relevant information? I, I think it's both. sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes that that's the issue. I think there's also, especially when we talk about substance use treatment disorder, it's, it has another component to it, which is the, the number of people who are actively in recovery themselves, then now are in a position of counseling others to do it. And so the way they did it is the way mm. that everybody else should do it. Okay. So we have a little bit of that going on as well. Um, but then there's just a lot of things I think that we've done in drug and alcohol treatment that we do simply out of tradition, that it's not based on anything. It's just, well, we've always done it this way. Mm. Like I'll give you an example. An example would be, um, a residential treatment program that operates a 30-day treatment program. Well, the fact that you set it at 30 days means that it's program-driven, not clinically driven. Mm. Because if it's clinically driven, it should be driven based off of the condition of the client. Where they, they move on to a lower level of care if they're ready at 15 days or if it takes 45 days. You can't say from the get-go, it's going to be 30 days and then we move you. Like... Intensive care units don't operate that way. You know, like you're in a yeah. you're in a ten day intensive care unit. You're doing great at day seven, but we have to keep you three more days because we do a ten day intensive care program. Like that doesn't <laughs> it's not it's that it doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't really make sense to do that for substance use disorder either. If it is truly um, a, a brain disorder. You know. mm, yeah. And so some of the, the answer to that question of why we're not seeing the science universally adopted and equally distributed, sometimes it's tradition. Sometimes it's the culture of the discipline. Sometimes it's the way we get paid. You know, sometimes mm, it's yeah. the financial model does not always incentivize um, adopting a best practice. Sometimes it incentivizes quantity care. 
um, versus quality care, or sometimes they will not pay you for adopting the best practice. In, in America, there's literally a code book of, it's like a menu, and in this menu of healthcare practices are the things insurance companies will pay us to do. If you are not doing something on that list, you will not get paid. And so that's yeah. very problematic because there's items on that list that specifically say, I'm using this intervention or this theory or this practice. Even if we don't necessarily have data to support that, um, that's what you have to do to get paid. So there's that aspect as well. But another thing that's been interesting about psychology research, and this is something that's come out in the last five years, is recently there was a robust attempt to replicate all of the biggest groundbreaking psychology studies in history because science is supposed to be replicable. That's kind of the idea of science. <laughs> and they couldn't do it. With no. like 90% of the studies, they couldn't be replicated. And that's extremely problematic for psychology research that your biggest groundbreaking, most identifying studies can't be replicated. And this mm. is a problem that we have in psychology is that sometimes our studies are so exciting that they make it to the morning, you know, f mm. DJ on your favorite radio show and gets disseminated into the public before it's been kind of rigorously identified by science. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it should be stressed, like you've said a couple of times, that what you do, it's a medical discipline. It's, it's not a, a totally separate area, right? Right. I, th yeah. I often wonder, because you guys describe yourself as, yourselves as therapists and your podcast is called Pod Therapy and therapy is what you do. I've noticed over in Australia, we don't tend to use the word therapist. Like you never go to see a therapist, you go to see a psychologist. And, and I wonder how much of that draws a bit of a divide. Therapist, you know, therapy is physiotherapy, it's chemotherapy. I wonder how much of just the language around it separates the two and makes people think they're, they're different things. Yeah, I think some mm -hmm. of that has yeah. to do also with licensure, like how you're licensed. So, you know, in America, if you're talking about going to see a psychologist, that means that that means specifically that they are a licensed psychologist, that they've got mm. that specific degree and that specific training, and they had to go through that specific licensing board. So most of the therapy that's done in the United States is done by master's level social workers, uh, master's mm -hmm. level uh, licensed in marriage and family therapists or mental health counselors. Um, generally, we all kind of use the term therapy. Okay. Um, and then when we get to actually prescribing medications, then that's psychiatry. So that's going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so counseling, we don't really hear counseling too much unless it's marriage and family Sometimes there's marriage counseling that mm. gets used. Uh, but for the most part, I think it's therapy, right, Jim? I, that's Yeah, and, and I think that one of the things that's interesting about that, the, the words that you use are, are very much tied to the region that you're in. And so in Australia, to, to hear you kind of ex describe it to us, it sounds like there are certain words that fit in the public conscience and some words that don't. If you go to England, um, those words will differ, mm. you know, and the, they will understand them to be very different. The word counseling might be completely a legal discipline, and there might not be, you know, any kind of healthcare discipline that revolves around the concept of counseling. In America, because our continent, you know, our nation is, is the size of a continent, it's, and, and yours is too, James, you have a very big country too. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> but, <laughs> just making sure I don't get hate mail from all my Aussies. Uh, yeah. we, we're diverse too. Okay, I get it, yeah. <laughs> 
but here in America, um, it differs by region a lot too. And so there's there's areas of our country where you will see an emphasis on the term counseling, an emphasis on uh, the term psychologist, um, psychiatry in some places, therapy in some places, psychotherapy in some places. Um, so we do have a lot of different you know terms. But this is why, at least here, when a healthcare provider is given a license and is certified, it's the power of words that's really being given to them. Um, to be practicing therapy or to call yourself a therapist or a psychotherapist, in our state, that's, that's kind of a regulated discipline. So it's malpractice or in some ways impersonating a healthcare provider um, if you are calling yourself one of those cherished words and you don't have some kind of disciplinary license to back that up. And so um, in, in our state, at least, and in our nation, um, those words are guarded terms, mm. and that's probably influencing the public as well as to understand where they come from. And what's a, what's a psychiatrist? Is that still a thing? Yeah, yeah so they, they still exist. Okay. Yep. So your psychiatrist basically um, just went to medical school and is able okay. to write prescriptions. So most if, of the yeah. Psych, yeah, most of the psychiatrists in in the United States, uh, they'll prescribe medications. Very few of them actually provide psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. It's mo- mostly pharmacological. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering yeah. if that term had sort so, of disappeared because it brought up sort of weird imaginings of electroshock therapy or, <laughs> or something from the past. But no, it's still a thing. Yep. <laughs> they only do that for fun now. Okay. They, they, yeah, that's that's not... That's on the weekend. The, the insurance has yeah. stopped reimbursing. So yeah, we don't do lobotomies except if you make us mad. But no, I mean, here in America, the ecosystem of, of the healthcare, you know, kind of taxidermy, it's a psychiatry is a medical doctor. They usually just give you pills. They meet with you for five to 20 minutes just to find out what's wrong and give you prescriptions for pills. They don't get to know you very much. A psychologist has to have a doctorate, um, but that doctorate is very research-based. And so a psychologist usually specializes in, uh, to some degree, research and to some degree, science. They've been trained to do science and also to do meaningful therapy, um, but the emphasis is on science. Mm. And so here in America, a clinical psychologist might do therapy or they might do research. Um, They can't prescribe medication. A lot of times they do assessments. And so let's say a person wants to be assessed to find out if they have autism. Usually a clinical psychologist is going to visit with you once or twice, conduct that assessment, write up the paperwork, and then you might use that to you know, guide your healthcare from that point on. But then a psychotherapist is usually what Nick's talking about, which could be a master's discipline, sometimes a doctoral discipline. But that's a different kind of licensure. And in America, we have different types of them. Marriage and family therapists, uh, clinical professional counselors, or um, licensed clinical social workers. And so those are your folks that are really sitting down, getting to know you. They're spending an hour with you. You're seeing them weekly. You're sitting on the fabled couch, and you're diving into life. And so that's the discipline of psychotherapy that we're usually talking about. And you each have all your own uh, individual disciplines, Nick, you're saying you're more uh, drug and addiction therapy, Jim, you're in the marriage relationships area. Were these things you chose or fell into? <laughs> I think we both fell into our disciplines, didn't we? Nick? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely fell into mine. I had no interest whatsoever in working with addiction. Um, mm. It didn't, it, it didn't really appeal to me. I, I wanted to go into mental health therapy, but then, uh, it just so happened that my internship that I had when I was working on my master's degree, the only place I really had available was a substance use treatment clinic. 
So I did my internship there and I just fell in love with it. And I've mm. been doing that now uh, 17 years. So it's I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I, I love working with substance use disorder. Yeah. Yeah. In this field, I think you fall into it backward almost all the time. Um, for me, I'm kind of a, a wanderer in this way. Uh, man, I ended up everywhere. My, my, my bachelor's degree is in religion. And so I actually uh, intended originally to work in a church and just be a minister. And uh, that was my, my entire career plan was to go do that. And uh, along Boy, the way, as south. I was doing my bachelor's, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? That, that turned over pretty quick. Uh, along the, the course of doing my bachelor's degree, I started teaching in a school. And so I became a high school history teacher for seven years. And um, then I started my master's because I decided to, uh, to go into mental health after I asked my high school students to take a personality test that might tell them what kind of career they'd like to do. And uh, one of my students said, well, you should take it too. And, and I did. And it said you should be a therapist. And I thought, you know, I'd really like that. That was the only reason I wanted to be a pastor in a church was yeah. I liked helping people. And that would be nice. And so then I, uh, I did my master's in marriage and family therapy. I absolutely hate working with couples. And I absolutely can't. I, I do <laughs> really? it, you know, but I hate it. I don't like, oh, they lie. They're terrible. You know, when you work with an individual person, they tell you the truth. They don't pay mm. you money to come sit on your couch and lie to you. They sit down and tell you the truth. But when you're sitting with a couple, 90% of the job is trying to find out what's really happening <laughs> because they just lie. <laughs> <laughs> so I did my master's in that, and um, I intended originally to graduate and specialize in marriage and family therapy, but then due to the, some of the licensing peculiarities of Nevada, I ended up pursuing a different license as a general psychotherapist, and uh, my master's allowed me to do that. That was fine, and so I ended up getting licensed as a clinical professional counselor instead of a marriage and family therapist, though my, my master's is in marriage and family therapy. I still treat couples and families, um, but I do more general work. And then my doctorate's in behavioral health, uh, specifically in the uh, area of integrated health care, which is how do you kind of couple mental health with uh, physical health in a primary clinic level. So when you have a, a client who has diabetes and hypertension and depression, how do you try to create a treatment approach that honors all of that at once and um, tries to create a one-stop shop in healthcare where you can sort of treat the whole person, um, which is really innovative and, and something I, I'm really excited about too. So, and then I also do a, a background in substance abuse as well, and Nick's very much been my mentor in that discipline, and we've worked together in drug and alcohol rehabs. So I have now done damn near every job that I could probably get a kindergartner to tell me they know exists, <laughs> except for fireman and policeman. You've still got time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, my background is in behavior as well, but mostly of, of spiders and grasshoppers and things. So you know, if you ever need uh, some advice... Uh, just give give us a buzz, and I'm sure I can help you out with some tips. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, it's funny though. I'm a huge animal nerd. Like that's all I like to do. I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was in high school, and originally, originally, that's what I wanted to do was marine biology. Uh, but then I realized there was way too much math, and I can't do math. My undergrad degree is a marine biology degree. <laughs> so, oh, really? yes. oh, cool. Like, everybody starts out wanting to be a marine biologist. 
<laughs> then you realize it's nuts, not all swimming with dolphins. No. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> that's it's, all it that's, is. Yes, that is because I hear that all the time. Everybody was always saying, I want to be a marine <laughs> yeah. biologist. And I think they just picture oh, yeah. just swimming with dolphins. That's it. Yeah. That's all I was going to do. That was the whole thing that was romanticized to me was I'm going to hang out with Shamu, the whale, and I'm going to get paid as a scientist, but I just get to swim all day with orcas. And um, it was all a lie. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're discovering I have a lot in common. I mean, Nick, I, I, I played ice hockey in high school as well, so I... I know what it feels like to not have you your did. skills recognized. It's a weird thing for an Australian to say. <laughs> I but know. Yeah. I didn't. I did. I wasn't sure you even would know what I meant when I said ice hockey. <laughs> we we really? have ice rinks. There's about four in the whole country. I think, and I just really? so happen it, to live it, near one. It's basically that water awesome. rugby, James. That's what it is. <laughs> oh, that's really You're cool. Wondering. I had no idea it was a thing down there. That's yeah, great. Yeah. We're really not very good at it. I, and I wasn't a good hockey player by Australian <laughs> standards. So uh, I don't think. I'd make it onto a peewee team over there. I'm probably not a good hockey player by Australia standards either. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think when you look at like the hockey in the Olympics, all the countries are divided up by different yeah. categories, and we're in there against Zimbabwe and, and yeah. <laughs> Jamaica. <laughs> like yeah. Jamaica. <laughs> oh, and here really come cool. the Australians. God bless them. They're trying their best. <laughs> Skating almost in a straight line. Good job, fellas. <laughs> and, and well, I can, Ols- I can I can add Australia to a list of countries that I'd be willing to move to then, because that's one of the one of the criteria of any country I'd move to. That was they, your criteria, Nick. To, they, is well, that they, they have to have hockey? That's one of them. The world famous <laughs> beaches and endless shrimp. That wasn't okay. <laughs> no, that's just no, that's just one. And golf. Got to have golf, which you guys have plenty of golf. golf. Oh yeah. So we're just yeah. gonna have to look up where the ice rinks are because they're. Pretty few and far between. Yeah, I imagine. But what, what, I remember what used to happen a lot is like some Canadian person would move over to Australia and the local ice hockey board would find out and they would poach them and say, can you please be on our national team? <laughs> 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 so you might stand a good chance of getting into oh, a pretty high up, high up league. That's awesome. <laughs> and also on the similarities, Jim, I also know what it feels like to have a half-written book sitting on your desk for 10 years. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> How's book publishing going? Uh, it's been 10 years. I've gotten out 150 pages and I'm done. I'm, I sent it off the to the proofreader today. All right. Yep, it's done. I, I've, the proofreader is now working it over and uh, we've picked the cover. It's, it's called Dad Vice, uh, 50 Fatherly Life Lessons. And um, I'm, I'm a father of two children. I have a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And ever since my son was born, um, I was really interested in trying to sort of distill some of the best things that I was learning um, in therapy work, in graduate work, in philosophy, and uh, try to distill it down to useful little aphorisms that were, you know, easy to take away. And um, so I started just jotting these things down over the decade and uh, eventually had enough of them that I said, well, I could probably turn this into a book and publish it. And that way my children will always have something that they can go back and say, see, our dad wasn't a complete idiot. (laughs) So I'm hoping this is my one redeeming quality for my history. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I now have a two-month-old, so while I've got you... What, do you want to throw a dad Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, invest in diapers, champ. You got a two-month-old? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't have too many. Okay. Buy all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, is this a, a boy or a girl? A little girl. Oh, Aww, that's awesome. That's wonderful. <laughs> 
Yeah, kiss all of your money goodbye. <laughs> that, that's yeah. chapter one of Dad Mice, is it? Yeah. <laughs> chapter one, yeah. The, the advice is not for dads. The advice is fatherly and aimed toward other people. So <laughs> okay. can't help you on the how to be a good dad thing. I'll tell you if I ever figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's motivated me to sit down and finish writing my book and send it off. <laughs> <laughs> What's your book going to be about? Spiders. Swimming with spiders? Uh, It's just uh, uh, why you should love spiders, essentially, because they're incredible animals. And if you learn to appreciate them, you will be a better person. uh, You'll be happier. You'll be more attractive, all that kind of stuff. I think if you can negotiate a truce with the spiders, I'd be open to it. But especially the things I hear about in Australia, your spiders are the thing of nightmares. (laughs) They they can be. They're, They're like the nice bouncer at the club. You know, you know, he he could mess you up something serious, but he doesn't want to. It's a bit like that. As long as you're well behaved, yeah. you'll just, be fine. That's right. Yeah. yeah, just just mind your manners and take off your hat, yeah. and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's pretty much that. All right, well, I think that's a good note. Well, I look forward to reading it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's a good note to end on. I'm pretty proud I managed to get through this without making this a personal free therapy session for myself because <laughs> it's expensive. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we can't bill you for this one. Hey, speaking of Australians uh, that are therapy enthusiasts, though, um, special shout out to Mandy Abela yes. and uh, Gray Whitaker, supporters of our show for a long time and, and uh, diehard Aussies. So special love to them. Yeah, I'm going to have to find an excuse to get uh, Matt and Paul on the show, but it's a pretty long stretch, the science behind, I guess, could do magic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. I, if, uh, we yeah. haven't been able to get them it'll, on our show yet either. It, it'll happen. You'll get them. <laughs> All right, Joel, should we finish by putting in another plug for your podcast? Yes, yes, please. Listen to Pod Therapy, P-O-D space T-H-E-R-A-P-Y. You can find us at podtherapy.net. Anywhere that you get your podcast, just type in Pod Space Therapy and we will show up. Hit subscribe. Give us tons of money on patreon.com slash therapy and help us do what we do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at, at podtherapyguys. And uh, our yep. email... Facebook.com slash podtherapy. Instagram is also... Uh, I think pod therapy guys. Pod therapy guys. Yep. And you can go onto podtherapy.net and, and ask questions to be answered in the show. Yes, absolutely. And and yep. what are, and christianmingle.com/podtherapy <laughs> and uh, eharmony. <laughs> we're we're just reaching to everybody we can at this point. Yep. And, and <laughs> essentially no question too weird. I mean, I guess you have lots of Las Vegas uh, listeners. So some of the questions are are out there. Uh, we've oh, yeah. gotten we've gotten yep, some the, great ones, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much guys hope you're all doing well and looking after yourselves and uh thanks again for coming on the podcast all right thank you thanks for having us all right, see you later that was dr jim jobin and nick tangerman from the pod therapy podcast reach out to them say hi tell them in situ science said you you can check us out online at insituscience.com or on social media at insituscience. You can also support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash insituscience. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.